The Unconventional Therapist Guide to Nothing. We are the Unconventional Therapists, and this is your guide to nothing, where each and every week we take a topic, theme, or thing, overanalyze it, and make it all make sense in the scheme of life, living, and mental health. My name is Dave, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Greg. Hey, Greg. How are you doing, sir? Um, I'm doing... I'm a little depressed from this topic. It's kind of a bummer. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a a, a lot. we're, We're back to the literature again, which... I know we said after the last literature one that we wanted to do another one. I didn't know it'd just be like right after almost. Yeah, well, but and we this, this is like double literature too, two books. And what I've learned is words like knowledge, responsibility, and freedom, words that you think should invoke positive emotions are actually our biggest punishment as human beings, according mm-hmm. to these books. Like today... We're going to talk about the original existential crisis and learn what was lost and what was gained with that original sin in the Garden of Eden. So we're going to be looking at the fall of man through the lens of two books, and those are Paradise Lost and The Fall by Camus. What did you you think about this, Dave? This was an undertaking, wasn't it? It was definitely something that gave me a lot of uh, anxiety because mm-hmm. I wanted to understand it as good, as well as I could. And I'm not going to lie, like reading Camus was uh, a little, little bit of a task to make mm-hmm. sure that I was capturing everything. There's so much in everything he writes. And, and we're talking about Albert Camus. Yeah. Did you say that? But in the beginning, I can't remember if he said his first name, just so people know who we're talking about. So, I mean, let's just start there a little bit. Like, how would people know him? I He is an absurdist philosopher that gets his point across through small, I guess you, you could say digestible, but I, I don't know if that's even true because there it's very flowery. Very, I, I wouldn't say digestible at all. No, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. But it reminds me of The Alchemist in the way that you can get through like six pages of this and there was like five lessons. There's five yeah. things you can grab on and be like, oh, whoa, what did he mean by that? So, that's kind of deep. So that's definitely something that I I took away from this one. And this wasn't my first Camus book um, or story because I had read The Stranger years ago when I was kind of dabbling in existentialism. And that's kind of the person who I always thought was like the go-to. Mm. And people might be familiar with, with that story Um maybe this is just me, but like the cure actually had a song about the stranger, about his story and about the uh, stranger walking on the beach with a gun in his hand. And then he shoots the individual. It's that whole idea of like, does it matter? What does anything matter? If I do this act, why does it matter? So that's exactly right. And it's, but it's asking the question, if nothing matters, does everything matter? Is it a choice? And that's kind of where you come at where, where we kind of get into these, uh, the idea of you're driving the bus of your own life. Every choice you make is your own. And that ultimately is our biggest punishment. Right. So let's start with Paradise Lost since we're taking it from the top. This is, Camus is going to be a, a, mo- a sort of modern interpretation of the fall and Paradise Lost is just taking us right back to 
essentially Genesis, but Genesis is so short, the story of Adam and Eve. And I like this Paradise Lost because it gives us, you know, insight into the personality of angels, into the personality of Jesus, into the personality of the devil and Adam and Eve, what they're like and what their purpose is. Like, for example, I didn't realize that Adam and Eve were put on earth to plant a garden. I thought that the Garden of Eden was just something they were allowed to live in, but they their job was to cultivate a garden. So Greg, is Paradise Lost intended to be its own? So who, and first, I mean, we should probably, we didn't even really introduce this book well. Paradise Lost is by? Milton. John Milton. John Milton. Yeah, and he is... I think the purpose of the book is to Dave, like we've seen it a thousand times and you're going to see when we, by the end of this and little things in in between is to guide people's behavior and their ethics and their morals and really be um, rooting for people to be very religious and for it to be very dangerous, not to be religious. But interestingly, it's almost where this idea of sympathy for, for the devil comes through this book. Okay. So the, is the intention of the book to expand the story from the Bible and create it, or is it just creating its own story with using the basis of the story? Exactly. It's, it's, it's filling in the blanks of the Bible and coming very, like right from the beginning where, you know, the devil being God's first creation before anything. And it, this book gets into why the angels revolted, why Satan, you know, reveals his first sin and how the angels fell and how eventually Satan made his way back to the Garden of Eden to kind of try to get back at God for everything he's put him through. It's it's really interesting, actually. It really is. And so then that's where we are. We're, we're in the Garden of Eden with essentially the devil and Adam and Eve are, are they're in the garden and an angel comes down and warns them. And he says, you know, there's a devil in the garden, essentially like hits the nail on the head. But Dave, what you gotta remember is this is the garden of Eden. There's no such thing as lies. There's no such thing as deception. They, they aren't, they have no knowledge of any of that stuff. So they're like, okay, there's a devil in the garden. Like, okay, that's cool. Like, that means absolutely nothing to us. And, um, it's very, there's a lot of things that happen here. So for example, Satan, he sees Eve and I thought this was very interesting and he sees how beautiful she is. Apparently Eve is like this wonder, like the most beautiful woman ever created. And for a second, the devil is good. All his evil dis- disappears. That's what Milton talks about for that. Her, the beauty just made him good for a moment. That's how beautiful she was. And what I thought he's trying to get the point across here is that Satan has knowledge. That's part of, you know, and that's, that's a burden. And eventually it'll be Adam and Eve's burden. But for right now, his burden is the knowledge that, yes, she's beautiful, but he can never have her. He'll never be with her. And he becomes envious and jealous. And it's a lot easier to just hate her instead of accepting the fact that you can never be with her. She's beautiful. You, you lose that appreciation for beauty because you become envious. You have these other things. You see how it's like starting like the devil has that it's, 
you can almost sympathize with him. Like that sucks. Yeah. Like you see this beautiful woman, but you can never be with her. And so he tries to figure out a way to trick Eve and he crawls. I mean, this is what happens. He crawls into the snake. And in this moment, another interesting thing is happening is because Satan is realizing his own fall. He's like, geez, look at me. And and it's his inner monologue. Look at me. I'm like crawling into a snake, which is just like a vile beast. And I used to be the most beautiful angel. I've had my own fall, you know? Yeah. It's it's interesting. So that's an interesting thing that I don't know if it's, you know, everybody knows that. But Satan's origins, the devil's origins, where he was an angel. Mm Mm-hmm. And how, what was the causation of his fall? So I technically the worst deadly sin, as we've described before is pride. So, but what I think it, what I think it really ends up being, and you see it in this is envy. He was envious of God. He was envious that, you know, he, God should have all this power. And I, what actually happened is, so Satan has all knowing knowledge, just like God at this point, well, just a little bit less, I'm sure. Right. But he knows that God is going to create a son who's going to be more powerful than him. And he's like, wait a minute, you're going to make someone after me and they're going to be more powerful than me. And he's like, wait a minute, this is, this isn't really sitting right with me. And he gets a third of the angels to sort of agree with him. And that's their sin, pride and envy. And then they're cast out of heaven into hell, which has to be created. Sure. And so it's, 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 it's really interesting. So with Milton's, uh, you know, interpretation of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and the devil and how this all plays out. What is the message that he is trying to get across that's not already just the blanket message that's in the Bible. There's, there's a lot. One thing being one message that we're going to see that's going to have some traction throughout history is that for one thing, Satan calls this tree of knowledge, the mother of science, which is a very interesting, that's a quote. It's a very interesting way to talk about a tree. And, you know, historically science is the enemy of religion and it's this idea that don't try to, and they, he depicts Adam as this like head in the clouds kind of guy trying to like understand what the stars are made of, trying try to understand all these things. And Milton's like, hey, look, you don't need to understand all that. Science isn't the answer. Just accept what we're telling you here. Yeah. Just like, just like Frankenstein or even Wizard of Oz, like pay no, no attention to the man behind the curtain. No, we just had this conversation recently and I'm, it's now the topic's escaping me where we were discussing the idea that people who were interested in philosophy were kind of against the, uh, the, the church. Right. What was, what was that topic? We were just, we I, just don't, I don't remember. Oh my goodness. But, the, the, but what, they, what are you great. doing with philosophy? You're asking why. Yes. You're asking why over and over again. Like, why is this happening? Why so, is this this way? And that's the enemy of religion. So essentially the, the idea here is when you start to question things too much, you start to lose sight of what's actually important and what's in front of you is mm-hmm. what's important, right? And making the right decisions, appreciation of the moment. So there's this idea that being too philosophical actually takes you away from just living in that moment and i think that there's some truth to that but also you know there's 
there's a balance. You have to be somewhat philosophical. That's a beautiful way to think about it. Cause that's, and it's also like a positive way to think about it. Cause the way I'm thinking about it is don't try to learn too much about the, the way the stars work, the way the earth works, the, the, the mother of science is evil because if you understand how things are working, maybe that gives you less of a chance to put your faith in God. Yeah. You know? And so the devil is down there and he's convincing. He convinces Eve to bite the apple. And the way he does it is he says, look, like this is God's plan. This is what God wants you to do. Like, remember, like you have to remember, Dave, like deceit and lies, all this stuff is, is she has no idea what that is. Like she has no reason to think that this guy's lying to me. So she's like, okay, yeah, like this, this is probably what God wants. And she eats it. And Milton makes it clear that Eve is less to blame because she was deceived. Now, Adam's sin and the original sin is Adam put his love for Eve over his love for God. Mm. And, I, and that's an interesting, like, what do you do with that message? Like, what's that messaging? Like your love for your wife shouldn't come close to your love of God. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is to me, the, the big message that this is all encompassing right here. Mm -hmm. Like this goes back to the, the philosophy thing. This is like, you know, it's just, it's all about your religion and putting that as the utmost important thing in your, in your world and not allowing your focus to stray too far. Like have appreciation for, for what's in front of you, for, for your life, for the people in your life. But don't forget that above all things is God. That's right. Yeah. And I, and why we're, we were really sounding like a religious podcast right now. Yeah. And we're right. trying to like, that's the messaging. That's, yeah. that's what they're trying to say. And some, some interpretations say that Eve used her now found skill, which is deception. She learned that this exists and she was able to convince Adam to bite the apple. And now that might, that interpretation might have come after, um, you know, people started hating on women as like, Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 100%. They right? had to make it, you know, they flipped her, it. her fault. They flipped it for sure. For sure. But this is, and when I call this the first existential crisis, you have to think for, they had nothing to worry about. God was in control of everything. And now all of a sudden your life is up to you. So this is the opposite of Jesus. Take the wheel. This is Jesus has let go of the wheel, like literally. And now it's up to you. What are you going to do? So you get these, you get these things. And like I mentioned in the beginning, you get responsibility, you get knowledge, which is, it sounds like a good thing, but knowledge creates anxiety and knowledge means that, you know, you're going to die. Knowledge is, is there's so much difficulty that comes with knowledge and freedom. Yeah. You get freedom, but what comes with freedom, mistakes, choices, how your life ends up is going to be up to you. This is scary stuff. Like God is saying, Hey, look, you, you made this mistake. I told you, you can't, I I would protect everything. You don't have to worry about a thing. You don't have to think of anything. And now you have all these things, including responsibility. Eve becomes pregnant. So we, we talked about this often, uh, the existential anxiety that people Mm. feel. And a lot of it is because the amount of freedoms we have and the amount of choices we have. And it all comes back to that idea that the more autonomy we have over our own lives and our, and the more choices we have in our lives, the more stressful our lives become because now all all that responsibility is on us. 
all the the play out of what happens if we make the wrong choices is on us. And that's terrifying and stressful. You're exactly right. And when something would have went wrong, you could have been like, all right, well, God's going to take care of that. Or, or I don't even have to think about it because yeah. it's, nothing's going to go wrong. But now every choice, like you're saying, every choice you make, if your life turns out like shit, look in the mirror. Yeah. Because it like, ultimately it's a you know, it's funny. It's like, I always think back when we have these kind of conversations, I always think back to the Puritans because that stuck with me so hard. That whole idea of how like they just, everything is God made it this way or the devil made it this way. Right. Mm-hmm. Anytime something goes wrong, it was the devil's fault. And in a way it's almost like that is the easiest way to live. Because you have no responsibility over anything that happens in your day. Like you don't have to take responsibility. It's the devil made me do it. It's it's not like I made my own conscious choice to make that terrible decision. It's no, the devil must have gotten into me and I should be punished. That's like what Milton is saying here. Like you're hitting on it perfectly. God is saying, it's almost like Nietzsche will say, you know, obviously a hundred centuries later, like or not even, but he, it's, you know, what, what are we doing with God is dead? Like God is dead. Like that's his, you know, famous quote. So this is the same thing. God just said, you're on your own. Now what? And I think we're going to get into that very much in Camus. You know what? I think when we, let's get into Camus, because I think that he does a better job of bringing up some modern themes of the fall and what it really means and how this fall you know, fictional or non-fictional, depending on like, you, you know, your theology, it doesn't really matter. But w- how is this still affecting us today? Yeah. If anything, I mean, just to kind of highlight this, if anything, I think that The Fall by Camus is actually kind of saying the opposite mm-hmm. in, in a lot of points of what you know, Paradise Lost uh, is presenting. I, I've, I've, I get what you're saying. I, I do almost like, like a reverse, like revealing, like to yourself, how, you know, you think that you're this great person, but now it's revealing to you. No, yeah. you're not, you're not great at all. So, so let's get into a little brief summary of the fall by mm-hmm. Albert Camus. Uh, this is a shortish story, mm-hmm. but very, very in depth so it can feel like a longish story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, a short story. It's a, it's a book. I'm going to give it the title. It's a thin book, but it's a book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's Absolutely. a, it's to take, it's tough to get through. It really and is. It's, it's super interesting in its literary style. So it's, it's basically a one person monologue, mm-hmm. which I think is important. And there's, you know, I've heard theories of why that is, or, you know, but it's why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Because it, it does something when I, well, as a I, reader, it does something to me. There, so there's an explanation I heard. I mean, and this is like people taking guesses, obviously. So there's no, there's no right or wrong answer. I did hear that this is like essentially the character who's giving the monologue or who's, who's speaking at us mm-hmm. as if we are sitting next to him. I did hear it was almost like his own confession to himself. Oh, okay, that that's interesting because as I read it, it feels he almost makes you feel like you're going through all these things, like you're walking through Amsterdam together. You're sitting at a bar. One hundred percent is like, that's like, that's the like 
that is definitely the setup. That is yeah. 100% exactly how I felt as I was reading it. You you start the the story and you're in a bar called Mexico City in in Amsterdam and you're you're approached by a man named John Baptiste mm-hmm. who sits next to you and then doesn't shut the hell up. For he doesn't shut the days. hell up. Now this book it's called The Fall. That's obviously um, a nod to religious, you know, sub- subtext. But John Baptiste, John the Baptist, yes, all throughout this book, the talk that uses words like rapture and judgment and benevolence and salvation. There's yeah. obvious nods to this is sort of a religious text, but never mentions really. Almost scoffs, definitely scoffs at religion yeah. throughout. Greg, do me a do me a favor. Let's. Can you please give a quick quick summary so that because i i know that we're just going to keep giving getting into details and nobody's gonna have any idea what we're saying until we actually give a summary of what this essentially the story is about so this story is about a man who was a playboy um successful in every way and thought really highly of himself and what ends up happening to him is he is tested and he's tested in three different ways. And through these tests, he's revealed to himself that he is not the person he thought he was. He's been deceiving himself his entire life. And he's actually kind of a, a crummy guy. Yeah. So to start, the first you know, few stories he tells, he presents himself as this man who enjoys doing good deeds. Mm-hmm. And you know, he, he mentions the idea of uh, pro bono. He's like a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I did quote unquote, cause he has another term judge, a judge uh, penitent. And that's, we'll penitent. talk about that at the end because it's very yeah. important how he manages to come to terms with his self-deceit. So he's, he, he'll do pro bono work and, you know, he, he just loves the praises of people saying, thank you so much and all that stuff. If he sees a blind person, he'll walk them across the street. Yes. And, you know, and he he describes all this, all the joy he gets out of doing these good deeds, which eventually starts to also highlight some hypocrisy because he's describing a person who's doing good deeds for the sake of good deeds. But then as he starts to tell him, it's like he's almost starting to sift through his own BS because he then starts to come to the realization that like, actually, I don't know that I do it just for the sake of doing a good deed. And I do actually think that I enjoy, there's like aspects that I do for selfish reasons. Mm -hmm. And one that's like super subtle, but interesting. He walks a blind man across the street and then tips his cap at him. A gesture that, that yeah, a gesture a blind man is obviously not going to be able to pick up on, but it's like, it's for him. Exactly. It's for him. It's for show. Yes. It's, you know, it, this, this behavior, he wants people to see him in a certain way and that's not for anybody else but himself. Yeah. And I think it's important. We talk about these three events and you will all be able to relate to them and I can go through them quick. And the first event is he is in an accident. And so he stopped on the side of the road and a man on a motorcycle gets out, gets off his motorcycle and, and hits him, like slaps him. And as a man, he, he thinks he's like this tough, strong individual. 
And he's one of these people who was like, well, if that person, he may be hearing a story of, he said, if that person did that to me, I would do this or I would do that. You know, these people that say like, if I could go back in time, I'd kill Hitler, like these kinds of things. But what he finds is he does nothing. And that's a slight on his, he was, something about himself was revealed. I am not this person that I thought I am. This person just slapped me. He's beneath me. And I did absolutely nothing about it. Interesting, right? Mm -hmm. The next couple are are quick, but very revealing too. So he's on a bridge and he sees a woman fall off the bridge and she's drowning and he can hear her screaming and he does nothing. He just listens and he, and he convinces himself, Oh, I'll drown if I go in there or I wouldn't be able to save her. Did that really happen? And he's starting to learn this important lesson that we aren't what we say we'll do. We're what we do. Yeah. Period. And it's interesting because we're also what we don't do and that haunts him. Mm -hmm. So he hears almost more importantly, Dave, almost more importantly, yeah, we, we are what we don't do. I think that's equally important. It's a great point. Because you can't undo certain things. And yeah. the fact that he didn't do anything haunts him. And what's scary is when these things start revealing themselves to you, you have to start asking the question, well, then who am I? Yeah. If I'm not this person, who am I? Yes. And this, dis- like this self-deceit, you got to remember what deceit, the, the word devil means the deceiver. And this is kind of the most dangerous thing we could do to ourselves because we're constantly deceiving ourselves until we're tested. Untested, who, like we, we, we have an idea of who we think we are, but we have no idea. Mm-hmm. And the longer you deceive yourself, like the longer you, know, you, you keep acting outside of who you think you are, the harder it is to kind of bring yourself back to wherever it is you think you're supposed to be. Like you can't, you can lose your phone and you can lose your wallet. You'll notice right away. But if you lose yourself, you might not notice until it's much too late. Right. It's very, it's very interesting. And so what I also think about Camus, he's a genius, by the way, because these three events, it's like three temptations. And I don't know how religious you are, but I do remember just Easter just passed. I used to watch these religious movies with my dad all the time. And Jesus was tempted, the devil, tempted by the devil in the desert three times. And Camus has having Jean-Baptiste go through the exact same thing. Oh. It's very interesting, right? And it's like you said too, Dave, it's this, I think I I heard it described as, this isn't my own idea, but I heard it described as a reverse baptism. Interesting. Where like a baptism, you're like, you have this, the potential is limitless. But now he's realizing that his potential is nowhere near what he thought it was. He's, he was untested and, the devil appeared to him and he failed. Very interesting. I was really interested in the idea of altruism. And I I spoke to you off air about this one because we brought that up when we did our seven deadly sins episode. Mm -hmm. You asked me, you know, do you think that there, that doing a good deed just for the sake of doing a good deed actually exists? And my answer to that was no at the time. And it still is. Yeah. I think this book, I think this book actually highlights that. I think it highlights that, it perfectly. I think that is honestly what he is saying about altruism is that it doesn't exist. Like we don't just do things for the most part just to do a good thing. There is usually some sort of selfish motivation. 
And it's also revealing this, this idea. And he may, he makes a lot of like interesting comments about slavery and it's not, but I don't think it's, it's not slavery the way we think of slavery. Like we, he makes the comments that there's innocence in slavery, just like in the, and I think he's trying to make a reference to the garden of Eden because before the fall, Adam and Eve were sort of slaves, mm-hmm. you know, anything that they did, as long as it was with, within the guidelines of what God told them to do, then they were, they were fine. But once they're free, now they can get themselves in trouble. And there's, there's punishment and responsibility. Responsibility is a dangerous thing. Like think about if I don't have any kids, for example, um, and you, you know, it's a much, much less likely for you to find a way for me to be evil. But with my kids, you can say, well, I'm going to threaten your, your children. And then, then I might, you know, well, I'll kill you for my kids. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like this responsibility adds this other layer. And, and it's one more thing that he mentions in the book. He says, we're outraged by slavery while accepting servitude as natural. I think that's very interesting. So like we're existing in our lives, knowing that we participate in things against our values and we deceive ourselves. Dave, think about, you know, our, our clothes that may be made in um, sweatshops or our phones. We definitely know that our phones are made in a way that's, you know, it goes against our values, but we use them and we convince ourselves that it's, it's necessary and not just convenient. Like, no, I can't get through life without a phone. Well, yeah, you could, but it's convenient. And you, so you deceive yourself into thinking, well, maybe the, the, the conditions aren't that bad. It's so far away from me. Yeah. It's just like when people, and he does mention this about slavery, but he, he mentions it in a way where it's like, you know, if you were thrown into the time of slavery and you say we lived over here, it's not in our face, just like this phone stuff's in our face. So, so would you not wear the clothes that were made from the cotton that was picked by slaves? Or you probably would, you probably would. And you would convince yourself that it's necessary. It's the only way to make, to get clothes. Not that it's just more convenient. It's interesting that we do that. And I think that's what the deceiver, the devil gave us the ability to deceive ourselves is the ultimate downfall of humanity. And this ability to deceive ourselves, in my opinion, is the fall of man. And I, I think that our, our character here also has an understanding that there is no such thing as a person who's free of sin. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting because, you know, we're, it's kind of like um, acknowledging that there's this part of us that is just compelled to sin, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I, and, you know, whatever that, for whatever that means. But it's interesting the way that he presents himself in, in the book. Because as we said, it's like one long monologue that's supposed to have span over multiple days because they, you know, there's supposed to be breaks and he sees them again the next day and stuff like that. But it's, you know, as you're reading it, it just kind of flows. He starts by highlighting all the positives in himself, mm-hmm. right? And then eventually kind of gradually starts to go into, oh, well, I also engaged in this debauchery at one point. I think he uses the word debauchery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he talked about kind of sleeping with uh, m- many women, uh, acknowledging not, not really ever loving any of them, uh, never really loving anyone, kind of loving himself more than others, I think. Um, an interesting thing is I would never sleep with my friend's wife kind of like as if he has this moral code mm-hmm. and moral standard, I would never sleep with my friend's wife. I would just stop being friends with my friend. Exactly. Before. It's like, <laughs> what that is. And he's, and he was like, he would say that he doesn't, 
love the quote creatures that he's with. He just doesn't want them to have a life outside of him. That is so narcissistic. And he's just like this really bad guy who's convinced himself that he's this really good guy. And then it's revealed to him that he's actually this really bad guy. And so he goes into this deep, dark depression until he finds a way to deal with it. And this is interesting. So Greg, think about it in that frame of a person who's confessing or, or like in some way trying to like plead a case for themselves and what their life was about or something. And that's how this plays out. It's almost as if, like you said, he's trying to convince, but then as he begins to tell more and more about himself, he can't help but recognize the own hypocrisy yeah. of who he is. Like the things that he prides himself on are, are fraud, they're fraudulent. A hundred percent. And so he comes up with this job. He calls it a job, but it's just, I guess it's his new identity and it's a judge penitent. And it's these two conflicting dialectic terms yeah. where the penitent is a confessor of sins. So he's now he's this person who's aware of his sins and he confesses them, but he also, because he does that, he's able to judge you for your sins because he's put them out to the table. And when you think about this, you have to think where, so this is politically motivated for Camus at the time, but this is still very relevant today when you have a very wealthy politician talking about the evil nature of corporations. And this politician may be a billionaire talking right. about the evil and excess and talk like, I know how it is for you poor people. It's like, dude, you're the, you're so rich. You know, you spent $600 million on your campaign or whatever it is. Right. And, it's, and doesn't he start talking initially about judges as if, mm-hmm. and saying a statement along the lines of who are they to judge other people? Right. Yeah. But then he ends up engaging in that behavior himself. Yeah. It's so interesting. This is so like, it's such a well done, um, view of the way we lie to ourselves and the human condition and how none of us can escape it. And what does that even mean? He has this line where he says, there is no intermediary between life and me. And it just makes me think of that idea where as human beings, we are, and we've talked about this before, we are our existence without obstacles. But the problem is we're born into like a world with obstacles. We're born into a world where to survive it, you have to start sinning almost right away. You have to be complicit in sin right away. You pick up a phone when you're like, you don't even need to know what what it is. And where do these things come from? I don't know if it's the conditions are still like that. I don't know enough about it, but I'm sure there's a million things, this computer we're talking on, whatever, that we're complicit in taking part in someone else's you know, miss, miss a terrible life. You know, we're contributing to that. Mm-hmm. It's fucking weird and dark. And the more you look at it, you're like, I got to look away. You have to deceive yourself. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's really hard to wrap your head around. It really is. It's a lot. <laughs> you, you made the reference that John Baptiste, uh, very familiar, like very similar to John the Baptist. So obviously, maybe there's some parallels there with the characters. Uh, John the Baptist is the one who declares that Jesus is coming, mm-hmm. right? So, and then, but for our character, I so I was listening a lot to analysis of the fall and this idea that 
the presentation here is that like God is dead. Yeah. Jesus is not coming to judge us or, you know, anything of that nature. We're here judging to judge ourselves and we're judging others. Right. Yeah. So, so that is very Nietzsche. Like God is dead. Where are we going to get, there's, there's no objective morality anymore. How do we know the difference between right or wrong? How do we, how do we live our lives without like, what's, what's the guidelines? Who's the judge now that the judge isn't here. Right. And the answer is us, right? We're all judging ourselves and judging others and, you know, deceiving ourselves and judging others. It's, it's interesting the, the way that's why I'm saying it's almost like uh, Camus kind of flips a lot of paradise lost and presents this other idea. Like this is like closing the door on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that, and it's very maybe this is why he made he named himself after John the Baptist is that he is doing the opposite of a baptism, or he's baptizing you in the new fall, or this idea that he discovered the new way to salvation. Yeah, and that's to just embrace judgment and you know, confess your sins and judge others. And that's, is, is that how all human beings exist? Kind of, we judge others constantly. How do we know where we line up against others? We judge them. We're constantly judging others. So there's this other part of the story that is super interesting and it's the setting. So they're in Amsterdam and they're describing Amsterdam as having a lot of like turns And reminiscent of what it would be Dante's version of hell, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's interesting because I was curious what your thoughts were about that. So I've heard some ideas because there's a few references to being in limbo, to being in like a waiting stage that's made in this this book. My thought is the idea of purgatory, but then he's describing it almost as in hell i think that he's done a good job of nothing is unintentional with Camus. like everything has a sort of a meaning to it and when he is a lawyer and when he feels like he's on top of the world he's living in paris right this is beautiful like uh, the top of society everyone is wealthy and successful it's the best it's the greatest city in the world at the time right maybe still and then his fall, as he's telling the story, he's in a port town with like sailors and the bad side of town. And I don't know how important it is, but this is Amsterdam. I mean, it's below sea level, isn't it? So it's a literal fall. It's lower. It's he's around the kind of people like when he meets the guy in the bar that he's telling the story to, he, he starts talking to them because he notices that he is wealthy, but what's he doing here with me? I I have to tell him like, he and, must be going through the same thing. And the first thing he notices is how unfamiliar our our character, the reader, is to the setting because we don't know that the bartender of Mexico of the bar Mexico City doesn't speak to you unless you speak. Uh, what language was it that he speaks? I can't remember. I don't either. I, I but it's essentially like he won't even acknowledge you if you don't speak that language. He'll just give you what he wants to give you. So it's like he is, he right in, right away recognized like this is someone who doesn't know 
doesn't know this area. Let me show him the ropes. Very, and, very interesting. And, and you're also right about like that part of where they are, that port town. Cause then he, you know, they're in like the red light district at one mm-hmm. point. Cause he's talking about the, you know, the silhouettes of the ladies. He's, you know, what, you know what I'm saying this? Like, honestly, as you're speaking it, it's almost like Jean Baptiste is becoming the deceiver and creating the fall for the next person, mm-hmm. Cre- creating the fall over and over again, showing like deceiving this person into living life his way, almost like the devil did to Eve lying. So to he's almost talking him into, yeah, you're right. He's like, he's, the way that he speaks about his behaviors, it almost talks you into thinking like there's maybe there's nothing like we're reading this, you know, we're judging John Baptiste <laughs> yeah. the entire time we're reading this as a reader. I'm judging John Baptiste. I'm literally doing what he's like, what he does. I know the others and what he's saying is like, and like what we think Kimu was saying is like kind of the problem, how we're hypocritical because we're looking at, John Baptiste's sins and we're in his issues and his problems that he, his problem behaviors. And we're, and we're judging and we're judging him for judging others too. But like, it's like the way he's trying to groom the character that he's speaking to. Right. A hundred percent. Groom's a good word. That's what he's doing. He doesn't want to be alone. Misery loves company. It's what, what a revelation to realize that we are judging him i know i think that's you know I don't even, do you have anything else to say about this because i, I seriously think that's a, a nice icing on the cake like that is full circle that is the full only circle thing. of hell whoa this yeah. podcast is just getting better and better How, do we get paid for that i mean i, I mean this is free <laughs> <laughs> so you know the the one last thing I, I would say is there's this idea that's presented in here of being able to enjoy the frivolous things in life, uh, but recognizing that they are not the most important things in life. And I think that's where our character, John Baptiste, sometimes gets lost in the sauce with that stuff. Like, you have to understand that it's okay to love. And I think this this is relevant to society today because I think that um, we get hyper-focused on things that are not the most meaningful things in life itself. What is meaningful in life itself? That's what do you to, think, to, so to everyone, like your purpose, I, I mean, whatever, it doesn't have to be a finite thing because it's a lot of pressure to ask someone what's meaningful to them. Um, yeah. Keep looking for that thing that's meaningful to you. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's creating something. Maybe it's, you know, what I think is the most meaningful thing is, you know, there's suffering all over the world. If I can alleviate the suffering in a couple of people in the world, yeah. that's meaningful to me. And and that's where I would kind of lean towards as well. So having some sort of positive impact on the world itself, I think is is the meaning, is meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the important aspect of life. And for some people, it's building something. For some people, it's creating sure. something, writing something. For some people, it's, you know, uh, it, it's taking care of their kids, their important, their work's important to them. It's find something though. But getting consumed with things that are best known as hobbies or interests, I think is dangerous. And I think our character falls, you know, falls for that at times, but it reminds me of like people who get so amped up about like 
something happening in sports that they're that they're being shitty with each other or they're yeah. actually committing act of violence over, <laughs> yeah. over something that's like and it's like it's great to have interest and be passionate about things but like when it starts to cause you like uh you know moral like uh ethical issues then you, you know you really got to check yourself and i think that that's important dave i've gotten to a place where i think that and I really wanted to do this subject because I think that self-deceit is the leading cause of mental health issues, period. I really do. I, I think that when we we talk about, and this is existential, so we can go this road, you know, the choices that we make are, are who we are, right? And how do we make those choices? We make the, our choices with our values. And there's times in our lives where we've made choices based on what was easier, what was you know, we felt was um, necessary, but we, but it wasn't right. It was just easier. And we felt it in our stomachs. We felt it. We felt that little pull saying like, this isn't the right thing to do, but we did it anyway, because we deceived ourselves into it. And the more times you do that, the further you get away from who you want to be. So I think that paying attention to that, listening to that little voice or that little, you know, feeling that's telling you, this isn't you listen to that. Try to deceive yourself as less as possible, as little as possible, even though we all kind of, and we've made it quite clear that it's impossible to do it completely. Yeah. You know, Greg, the only, the only thing I have to like say about that idea is there's so many people who walk around that haven't actually taken the time to identify what their values are. And I think that that makes decision-making super challenging and, can lead people down difficult paths because if you don't know what your values are or where you like, when you like, I think everybody has to take a chance to has to take some time to just sit down and say like, what is valuable to me? What, what are my, like, I'm not going to bend on this. Mm -hmm. What's the most important things in my life. And, you know, kind of understand those things about themselves so that they know that like, if I'm ever presented with an, with a question about something or an, or a choice I have to make, I know that what my values are. And I know that I want to act towards my values. Cause if I don't, I'm going to feel incongruent. I'm going to feel like inside of me, that's, I did something wrong and it leads, it makes me feel negative. And that's, you know, I think something that people really have to do some it, it does take work. And I, and I think you have to ask yourself, it's like, it's multi-pronged. You have to ask yourself, well, what, what kind of person do I want to be? You have to have that vision. And then maybe you go through it. Maybe you Google a list of values. Maybe you're not even sure. Like, you know, is, is strength important to me? Is, is honesty important to me? Is loyalty important to me? And then when you have a choice that you have to make, you have to, you have to think, am I the kind of person that would do this? Or am I the kind of person that would do that? Is, you know, if, if telling a lie, am I the kind of, is honesty one of my values? It's, if it is, I want to be the kind of person that's known as being honest, then I yeah. can't lie here. I have to go with this, you know? And, and living in accordance with your values is less often as easy as just doing what, you know. Oh, we're tested it's all It's so the hard. Time. It's so oh. hard. That is one of the things that comes up on a daily basis is you are going to be presented with some kind of challenge and there will be temptations and those temptations, like it's what you said earlier about sometimes we do the shorter, the faster, or the easier thing. That's all the time mm -hmm. we're presented with that, that. And we always have to remember like the things that are 
<laughs> the hardest to obtain and to stick to are probably the most important. Mm-hmm. And always remember too, when you, you'll know if you're making that decision that's against your values on some level, I think you'll feel it. And the more you do it, the further you are away from yourself. Yeah. Okay. But we're, uh, we're getting a little judgy here, Dave. Don't you think? Which I don't, I don't want to be a John Baptiste over here. <laughs> I know. I was just about to claim Mr. Baptiste. Great job. But listen, th- thanks for thanks for doing this, Dave. I know it was a, a lot to ask of you, and you did your due diligence, and I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. This was uh, a good book, so I hope that people will pick up The Fall and also Paradise Lost. Paradise and- Lost is a wild ride. I, I do highly recommend that. It's like whatever, like Jesus is like fighting the demons. It's crazy. Like uh, riding on a rainbow or like in the stars, it's kind of intense. Yeah. And it has the devil like giving speeches in hell. It's wild. It's wild. Sounds nuts. It is. <laughs> so thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next week. We appreciate you guys always giving us your support. And we hope that you have a great night.